Okay, welcome to Dirty Politics. In this episode, Simon and I are going to be discussing how the opposition gets to government, in this case the National Party, and what are the big strategic things that National needs to do to get there. Welcome, Simon. Thanks, Cam. I reckon that the first thing they've got to do is come up with credible alternative budgets. This is a huge mistake that Labor made. They never had alternative budgets, so they didn't know what stuff costed. They didn't have a decent policy. I was asking people in Labor about this consistently, and they were saying, oh, no, we don't want to do an alternative budget because National will steal our policies. That's just a piss-poor excuse. That's like when Richard Worth said that people didn't like phone calls when ACT was phone-calling everyone in Epsom, and Richard Worth bloody lost. It's just a like a cop-out. Yeah, well, I've been talking to a few journalists today, and they tell me that Grant Robertson's really struggling with his portfolio, mainly because he hasn't learnt to say no. And all the other ministers are coming to him saying, but we've promised this, we've promised that. The other thing that's caused Robertson problem is that he hasn't done the work during the last nine years to credibly be a finance minister. And so he's seriously relying on the staff that he's hired in his office. Now, Some of those people from Treasury and that are actually quite good at what they do, and that's the only saving grace that they've got at the moment. But I agree with you. I think that Amy Adams, if she doesn't have a budget, an alternative budget that she releases within 24 hours of the government's budget, then she should resign. That'll just prove that she's lazy, hopeless, and out of touch with the position that she has in the National Party. Yeah, and you know, if you're the leader, you've probably got one election, one shot at this. You don't want to be let down by someone who has demanded a senior position and then doesn't do the work. It's not as if it's that hard to put together an alternative budget. Amy was the Associate Finance Minister, so she should know how to do it. What it comes down to is whether she's got the will to do the work. That's the bit that I have question marks in my head about, is whether Amy is actually willing to do that work. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? You have to do the work, and opposition is the hardest job that you can have. You've got to do everything yourself. You don't have staff, so you have to be quick-witted, you have to be hardworking, and you have to make sure that the things that you are talking about resonate with the public. You can go and grandstand, and you can get headlines and do all of those sorts of things, but if you can't back it up with hard evidence, with hard work, and with simple facts that can't be refuted by the government, as well as putting the hits on when they're needed to be put on, there must be endless opportunities in finance because it touches everything to go and land a hit on Grant Robertson. And so far in the House, I haven't seen a single hit put on him by Amy Adams. He must just sit there and laugh when she's got a question. Yeah, look, I think that Amy Adams is a real big test. Is she going to come up with an alternative budget or is she not? It's a zero-sum game. If she doesn't, she is someone that we can't really take seriously. She should be able to have something together by the 27th of May or whatever the day after the budget is. It's not as if the budget will be a surprise to her because she worked on the previous one. But does she have the work ethic? Is she willing to do the hard yards without the staff doing all the heavy lifting for her? Yeah, it's really simple. It is countering the government's budget and highlighting the holes that they've got in it and what National would do differently to fill those holes. Really simple stuff. Yeah, and then just demonstrate to the National Caucus that if they're coming up with policies, they have to be properly costed. You can't just make shit up like Labor did and then hope for the best, which essentially appears to be the policy for Labor. Well, and that best isn't working for them. No. The other area that's of concern for national significant concern, as we saw in the latest One News Colmar Brunton poll, is a distinct lack of coalition partners. Yeah, and I think that the easiest thing to do is to look around and see that 
New Zealand First pretty much the only party in Parliament that they could potentially do a deal with and focus their attacks on Labour and the Greens and see if they can't repair the relationship with New Zealand First. There's certainly a generational change and a change in the people that were very dismissive of Winston Peters. So there is an opportunity to try and repair that relationship. It may not work, but it's another zero-sum game. You either have them or you don't. And if you don't, you're probably going to be in opposition. So you might as well make an effort now. You know, I have been very critical of Bill English because he completely fucked up the coalition negotiations, which was no real surprise to anyone that knew Bill. But what he really fucked up was that as soon as he became Prime Minister, he had an opportunity to signal there was a change in thought about New Zealand First and Winston. And his first phone call after the press conference when he became Prime Minister should have been to Winston saying, come over and have a whiskey. It's actually worse than that, Simon, because I've been talking to an insider today and they told me that Bill English's attitude in the coalition negotiations was just pure arrogance. He sat there at one point and the New Zealand First negotiators suggested that there need to be a greater focus on social spending and social return rather than the rather dry solutions that he was providing. And I'm told that his answer was that he would rather piss in his cup of coffee and drink it than do anything like that. And that's pretty much a word-for-word quote of what he said. And it was at that point New Zealand First knew that they weren't going to get anywhere, that the arrogance of Bill English, the hostile attitude and the backstabbing that had gone on towards Winston Peters for basically 30 years was going to continue as long as Bill English was there. And so it became, as we've been talking about, zero-sum game for Winston. He thought, well, if we're going to get ahead, the best thing we can do is to remove the cancer of Bill English from Parliament, and the best thing that I can do to make that happen is go with Labour. Yeah, you know, I've heard similar stories, not quite the same quote, but Bill's complete lack of interest inside the coalition negotiations, where he was doodling and just obviously not mentally with it. And New Zealand First were trying to ask what he thought of a particular policy, and he just didn't really have an opinion. See, Winston's the great deal maker. I mean, if I can bury the hatchet with Winston Peters and have him answer my phone calls when I ring and get answers out in New Zealand first from almost anybody there except Tracy Martin, then anybody can. And I see Winston as one of the great forgivers in politics. And it's something that you don't get a chance to talk about very often because it's so adversarial. But I've always found Winston very approachable. And we reminisce over some things that happened at my parents' house when I was a whippersnapper and he was there telling stories that I've remembered. And, you know, he's always passing on his regards to my old man and stuff like that. So I've got some respect for him there, whereas I used to be openly hostile. In fact, I even called him corrupt once to his face. So I reckon a deal could have been done by National. And I reckon now that they've got rid of that cancerous backstabbing coterie of people at the senior end of the National Party now, that with the new people in there that a deal could be cut too, and all it takes is a couple of bottles of scotch and some cigars, I'd imagine. Yeah, and so my impression of Winston is always willing to forgive. And if you're willing to extend an olive branch, he'll be quite happy to take it. And he is a real pragmatist, and he's not that difficult to get along with. It just beggars belief that Bill English couldn't have seen that his entire political career would come to an end based on Winston Peters' decision. And therefore, he didn't do anything to reach out and try and build a rapport with him. Yeah, exactly. All National has to do, I think, to create detente now with New Zealand First is to somehow marginalise and reduce the influence of Paula Bennett in the caucus, and I think they'd be there. 
Yeah, although what I was somewhat surprised to hear that the impression of Paula in the coalition negotiations was quite favourable. She was at least making a hell of an effort. You know, I think that probably some of Winston's tolerance of people having a go at you and then forgiving them, they'd probably be willing to overlook what Paula's done in the past if she's willing to be reasonable. Well, it all comes down to the lawsuit that's sitting there and there's a few things that are, need to be resolved around that. But anyway, enough about New Zealand first. Are you picking up rumours that there's the possibility there could be the creation of a new party? Because I'm hearing that. Yeah, and there's always rumours about new parties and periodically people come and ask me whether I'll set one up with them and I tell them that without $5 million and an existing MP, it's going to be really, really hard. But at the same time, the rumours about a blue-green party centred around Nick Smith do sound a lot more plausible, and Nick Smith owns his own seat. It's a seat that he would win with a new party. The Greens are really very red. They're not green at all. And I think there's a space there that someone like Nick would be able to capitalise on. I'm not sure whether Nick would actually do it, but certainly what I'm picking up out of Nelson is that there's a lot of chatter. Well, the other thing I'm picking up is that if there was such a blue-green party, that it might be a good idea for National to get rid of some of their wet MPs to that new party, the likes of Nikki Kay and New Zealand's favourite grandmother from North Shore. Yeah, and you know that would make it a much more viable proposition if National did the sensible thing and allowed them a clear run at their seats. I mean, National's not going to do any good in Nelson. You need a wet in Auckland Central. The seat that probably would hurt is uh, New Zealand's favourite grandmother in the North Shore because that's a very blue seat. But at the same time, if that's the difference between becoming Prime Minister and not becoming Prime Minister... That's worth doing, isn't it? That's a deal that they should do. Yeah, just do it. Yeah. What about the perennial question over a socially conservative or a Christian-based party out there? Or has that been completely, utterly wrecked as an idea by various rat bags over time? Well, I think the problem with the people that have been running these parties is that they have a track record of being absolute scumbags and doing really dodgy stuff. I think that if you can get past that, there's certainly a lot of will amongst Christian donors to fund Christian things. And there's a very, very capable and well-run organisation in the Maxim Institute. If that was the basis, if Maxim alumni and staff were involved. I think that unlike the other Christian parties in the past, they've been tested. So they're probably the dodgy people have been found out. They have a big donor network and some good people there. And I have fond memories of their headquarters too, because it was the house of my great uncle, Keith Hay. Yeah, and look, they're a well-funded, well-run organisation. Greg Fleming is no longer running Maxim, but he is a really good operator. When you meet Greg Fleming, you don't think he's a dodgy bastard like you did with, say, Colin Craig or some of the other Christian people around. And I think that he um, probably something that he's involved in, I would think, would have quite a high chance of success. I'd have a rider on that, and I would say that any Christian or socially conservative party should steer clear of Bob McCroskey. Yeah, I think that that's a wise thing, although I think that probably Bob reflects a lot of the values of the social conservatives. You know, I think that probably if I were to be running a socially conservative party, which I wouldn't, I would be encouraging Bob to keep doing and saying the things he's doing because that gives sort of somewhere out to the even more socially conservative. But this term is set up for the social conservatives. Jacinda wants to have a debate about abortion, which is just like 
why would you worry about it? Our system works bloody well. There's no problems. So why not just leave it alone? And then euthanasia is obviously going to come up. And that's something that all the godbotherers tend to get really hot under the collar about. You could easily see some of the socially conservative national MPs being positioned so that they're really forced out of the National Party, which would be good for national. And it would probably mean that the country moves more towards a right-wing government and a more socially conservative government. Yeah, see, I'm a Christian myself, but I don't see myself as being socially conservative. I'm socially liberal and fiscally conservative, and God, we need a party that supports people like that. But the trouble is when you get social liberals is they tend to be wet as well. Yeah. <laughs> There's not too many yeah. of those yeah. around. If you look at you know people like Nikki Kay, socially liberal, economically liberal, she's wetter than the Pacific Ocean. Oh, it's like that bloody puddle that was around Amy Adams oh. when she announced her leadership bid. Well, she was one of the puddle, you know. Yeah. She was probably filling it up the highest, you know. Yeah, but there's three people that are – so Simon O'Connor went through Catholic priest training before deciding, I guess, he probably wanted a route, so he left. And then Simeon Brown and Chris Pink are both from Maxim um, or associated with Maxim. Yeah. Chris Pink has said some really sensible things in a – compelling way on issues where I disagree with him. And I'm nodding my head thinking, yeah, this bloke's got it. He's really improved since the Rodney selection because he was absolutely dreadful during that selection. But I think he was just frustrated by the shenanigans that had gone on by the electorate chairman and a couple of other happy hand clappers that were involved in that selection. Yeah, and what it has shown is that people that lose a selection and then he went on and ran in a red seat and took a pounding and then he ends up being the MP for health. Which is a seat for he, life. He did it the right way. Yeah, I think that Simeon Brown and Simon O'Connell also have seats for life. They've got very blue seats. And if National is serious, they'll be thinking about asking those three to use their contacts and build a socially conservative party. I mean, Simeon was protesting abortion on Auckland Uni campus not that long ago. Yeah, it's someone with a body like a half-sucked throaty doing something like that against the dungaree-wearing lesbians. Yeah. It's pretty brave, if you ask me. Yeah, you've got to admire the <laughs> Yeah, Some of those lesbians, they're fucking scary. Yeah, I mean, if you woke up next to one of them, you'd think something had gone seriously wrong. Yeah. So coalition partners is problematic. The easiest solution is bury the hatchet with New Zealand first. A harder solution is to create some sort of socially conservative or a blue-green type party. We've talked about the alternative budget. The other thing that an opposition has to impart, and I think this is one of the failings of Labour, is that they became government without actually sharing with us a vision. Well, I don't know what they stood for. and It just reminds me of what David Axelrod, who was one of Obama's two top campaign guys, went across and helped Ed Miliband. And afterwards he said, Ed Miliband, it was vote Labour and get a free microwave, which was sort of their offering. It's like, oh, we'll give you this and we'll give you that and we'll give you that. Instead of having a coherent vision for how the country should be run, that's the bit that I'm not sure whether National are going to get their head around. What is their vision? It's like the reverse of the EPMU selection thing, you know. If you don't give me a coffee machine, then this person's not going to get selected. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there needs to be some core policies. And I've been talking with a couple of old school commentators this week. We were talking about how Winston got railroaded out of the National Party and uh, what Winston's always stood for. And I sat down and I thought, yeah, I need to think about this because, you know, I was donkey deep and involved in a lot of the party stuff around that time. And I think back on it, I look at what Winston stands for, and it's actually core National Party values. 
And I think that the National Party has, through a cult of personality over 20 years, gone away from those National Party values. And I think they need to have a leader or a leadership team that sits down and assesses what those values are, because they're still relevant today. And if they can impart that vision that we want to return to the values, not to the narrative that Helen Clark built and this current Labour government continues to echo, because you know I used to sit there and think, well, that's not what nationals like. That's not the national people I know, the way that Helen Clark's describing them. And these are the slogans that Grant Robertson, Jacinda Ardern, Chris Hipkins, and all those other little sycophants that were brought up on the knee of Auntie Helen. That's what they learnt. And I think if National can pass a vision that to the electorate that goes back and echoes those core values, then I think they've got a real chance there. But it's can they get someone to do that? Yeah, look, I have a bit of a disagreement about Winston having clear National Party values. And where I don't think Winston has clear national values is he is much more interventionist than true free marketeer. He doesn't like free trade. He believes in New Zealand first and has been consistent in that. And he's always looking for government intervention rather than a reduction of regulation and a reduction in government involvement. And that's the opportunity that I believe National have, that to make an argument around the problem with New Zealand is too much government. It's too expensive and the regulations are stupid. And that's a really, really easy message for the average New Zealander. doesn't matter what you're doing. If you want to put a garage on your house or a granny flat, it's an absolute pain in the ass because of all the regulation. And then you try and build a big factory or something and it's an absolute nightmare because you've got so much bureaucracy to deal with. And the risks that are associated with the build and the regulations that are being used to prevent the risks occurring, it's just way out of whack. The cost of the regulation is way higher than the benefits that we receive from it. Yeah, it is a key thing to get that vision right. Trade something that can easily be dealt with, removing interventionist type meddling. And if you look at this government, and this is where I think Winston's going to start to struggle in about another six months. If you look at what Phil Twyford's trying to achieve, it's total meddling with the market. And it's doomed to failure, absolutely doomed to failure. They're going to learn a lesson that government is never the answer. It's always the problem. This is something of an issue National can use to their advantage. The Auckland housing market, it isn't a market failure. It's a regulatory failure. It's a government failure. And they can just be hammering away that it is a government failure. The market has been distorted by bad regulation. And therefore, the prices go up. If there was a free market in Auckland, there'd be a lot more houses built. But there aren't. It's heavily regulated. And the problem comes from these left-wingers that want to create Auckland in the image of a compact European city that's built on the flat when they ignore that Auckland is built on an isthmus, surrounded by two harbours, an awful lot of water, and has a lot of hills and mountains in it. And so deploying European solutions for public transport into that environment is a recipe for disaster. But that's what they want. They want to have all these gay cycleways that everyone can traipse around on on their gay-looking bikes. It's just never going to happen. It's never going to work. Yeah, I think the other thing that they're doing, which is they're changing the nature of Auckland and they're going to turn it into an immigrant city rather than a New Zealand city. And at some stage, there will be a backlash against that. I saw a Facebook post through a guy that used public transport yesterday and there were no white people on the bus. And he took two, one from the North Shore and then one out into Mount Albert. 
no white people using public transport. It's an interesting thing from a sociological perspective, but it's also showing that if we have infill housing and then apartments and public transport, there'll be white flight. You know, is that something that the um, we really want? Well, no, exactly. This is, I think, somewhere that National and New Zealand First could operate together on, is halting mass immigration from countries whose society, belief systems, even religion, are incompatible with our liberal New Zealand democracy. You know, I firmly believe that both National and New Zealand First should have a FIFO policy on immigration. You sign up to fit in, and if you don't adhere to that, then you can fuck off. And I think that most New Zealanders would be quite happy to agree. It's not a difficult thing. We have a place that we all love, and we don't want a culture changed by foreigners. If they want to come in and participate and be good New Zealand citizens, then we're all for them. And I think that the Pacific immigration into New Zealand has been fantastic. The South African immigration has been fantastic. I don't know enough about the more recent immigration, but people that play rugby and drink beer are probably good blokes. Well, we don't want bludgers, and we don't want people who are coming here and want to change our way of life to be like the shitholes that they've come from. And that's the problem I have with a lot of immigrants. They come here, they moan like crap about everything, and then they insist that we change our rules to make our country like the shithole they left. Well, they can piss off. Yeah, you know, I'm pretty staunch in my support of women's rights because I think it's important that we have women able to participate fully in our society and in our economy. Well, it's not just women, though, Simon. If you look at some of these cultures... You know, they've got attitudes that make the poof bashing of the 70s and 80s look rather tame. And do we really want those people coming here and bringing those attitudes? I don't. No, we definitely no. don't. You know, some of the freedoms in our society have been exceptionally hard fought and we need to preserve them for those that fought so hard to gain them. Right, to summarise our little discussion that we've had in this episode, Simon, in order for National to credibly transition from opposition to government, there's three things that they need to do. One is an alternate budget. Amy Adams needs to pull finger on that or else she's got a credibility problem. Two is look at, seriously, coalition partners, whether that's a combination of detente with New Zealand First uh, or helping create a new party and pretty much writing ACT off. And the last one is vision. Yeah, and that's probably the one that's the most interesting in terms of do they have one and are they willing to make a full-throated defence of the free market and the free market and liberal democracy and the wonderful impact it has had on the lives of so many across New Zealand? Well, exactly. I mean, you can make the case that trade has improved lifestyles, but you have to make the case in a demonstrable way, one that works. And I guess that's what resonates with Donald Trump. The Labour Party likes to mock Donald Trump and Jacinda was doing it again today, which isn't really going to help her cause for the tariffs to come off the steel. But it's ironic because a lot of Trump's policies are what are normally Labour's policies. And she might be upset at being compared to Donald Trump, but their immigration policy and some of their trade policies are virtually identical to Trump's. So I think they just have to suck that up. Yeah, it's obviously stupid to alienate our security guarantor and one of our biggest trading partners because you just don't like the bloke. I mean, when you're Prime Minister, you've got to actually deal with some people you don't like. Well, there's plenty of people in New Zealand who don't like our Prime Minister who have to deal with her, but that's the way of it. Yeah. Yep. So alternate budget, coalition partners, and some vision. And vision drives policy. So that's our recipe that we're suggesting that Simon Bridges picks up. 
if he doesn't pick it up, he's going to struggle. Yep. And we should look forward to the future. And uh, thank you once again, Simon, for participating in the Dirty Politics podcast. 